Hello, welcome to Reimagining Asia, a podcast from Microsoft produced with The Economist Group, where we explored the tectonic shift in our region's economy from made in Asia to born in Asia. My name is Ahmed Mazari. I'm the president of Microsoft Asia based in Singapore, and I'll be your host for today's discussion about innovation born in this region. So what does the shift from made in Asia to born in Asia mean? Well, for years, Asia has been seen as the world's factory floor, good at manufacturing products dreamt up elsewhere. Now, there is a new generation of homegrown innovators with the creativity, originality, and knowledge that's fueling Asia to become the world's new innovation engine. Asia is a place where ideas are originating, not just being executed. Startups, once the domain of Silicon Valley, are thriving in Beijing, Jakarta, Mumbai, Singapore, Sydney, Tokyo, and beyond. They're solving local and business problems and making a positive social impact across the region. Some of these startups have become unicorns and decacorns, and others are now exporting their ideas globally. Let's find out more. I have two guests today to help me break it down, both of whom I'm super excited to speak with. The first is the president of one of these incredible enterprises. Teddy Otomo of Bukala Park joins us and tells us how his company, an Indonesian-based e-commerce marketplace, has transformed millions of traditional small Indonesian businesses by helping to sell their products and services online. This platform now has 110 million users. Teddy joins us from Perth. Also with us today is a guest who wears many hats and has a real deep understanding of Asia's tech scene and how the region's businesses are quite unique. Rema, over the 15 years of experience in investment and investment banking, she has worked with private equity and venture capital firms, and she has consulted for Deloitte. But she's arguably best known for one of her latest ventures, the Tech Buzz China podcast, a series of monthly deep dives into flagship companies or innovative sectors in China tech. Ray is from China, but joins us from San Francisco Bay Area, where she's now based. A very warm welcome to the podcast to both of you. Let's start with Teddy. How is Bukala Park unique? What problems is it trying to solve? And what solutions did it come up with to solve them? Thank you, Ahmed. So Bukalapak is quite unique in the sense that we are not just an e-commerce company. We look at ourselves as what we call an all-commerce because Indonesia, as very widely known, it has 270 million populations. But a lot of people did not realize that out of the 270 million population, only about 40 to 50 million actually resides in the tier one city of the country. You are talking about over 200 million people live across these vast nations that has over 17,000 islands. Now, financial inclusion 
is an issue still by and large Indonesia. Credit card penetration is low. Logistic drop-off point, there's only about over 4,000 post office, for example. So this is a very unique situation for the country where a lot of people has been trying to link and connect this country to technology. But there remains a lot of challenge. If you purchase anything on e-commerce, how do you deliver it? If you are to purchase anything on e-commerce and you don't have credit cards, how do you pay for it? You still hold a vast amount of cash. Where do you transact using those cash, right? So we kind of looked around this country and we realized that we need an infrastructure to connect this whole vast 270 million population. But it's very, very costly to roll up offline store, obviously. But the solution was, amazingly enough, right under our nose. This is a country with 64 million MSME. There are millions and millions of mom and pop store. There are millions and millions of traditional convenience store. So what we have done is we empower them. We connect them from a very simple idea of using them as a payment channel. Now, this initiative has taken a life of its own. It's currently half of our business. We are currently helping this traditional convenience store in their FMCG fulfillment because they are traditional convenience store. They're able to order the goods that they want to resell today and then it will arrive tomorrow. They are able to expand the SKU of their offering. But beyond that, we actually brought them to have the same capability to practically a lot of modern retailer. By means is that they started off from traditional convenience store that are selling snacks, mineral water, instant noodles. Now they are able to become logistic agents. They become basic bank branch because you can send money there. They become bill payment agent. They can become basic travel agent because they sell bus ticket, train ticket, and a whole vast of capability that on average, after they connected to us, their revenue went up 3x because they transform from a basic, you know, general traditional convenience store into many other things, including gold investment, game vouchers, agent, and a vast amount of capability. Now, this solution allows us to tap into majority of this outside tier one city of Indonesia. Over 70% of our business are today coming from outside tier one city because people can purchase something online, walk up to this mom and pop kiosk, pay by cash, and this mom and pop kiosk will settle the end customer's purchases using the wallet that they already have with us. What a fascinating story, uh, Teddy. And I always marvel at the work that you're doing um, and how you're truly enabling progress at the roots. Uh, you're probably creating super app out of every micro SME, out of every stall. Um, so Congratulations. I mean, this is true societal progress. Uh, but just kind of progressing on beyond uh, Bukalapak, you know, so why has Indonesia tech scene become so vibrant? Um, first changes has been the affordability of the device. You'll remember, you know, five, 10 years ago, you need to be middle segment or upper middle segment to be able to afford a smartphone. Today, smartphone penetration in Indonesia is very, very fast. The issue has not been digital penetration because even the mom and pop kiosks, they have smartphones, right? Sure, it's a lower end of smartphones. So when you develop something for them, you need to be conscious of that. But it's always been, you know, that ability to now connect throughout the whole Indonesia has sparked a lot of interest to develop the technology and digital capability. 
for us, what we looked at is the next step beyond. You're connecting on digital technology. The question is, what's next after that? How do you deliver? How do you pay? How do you go beyond um, just being having the apps on your smartphone? But I think you know, that has been the turning point for Indonesia roughly at about sometime in 2015, 2016, where device become a lot more affordable and you have just seen the surge in regards of innovation in the digital technology in this country. It's fascinating, you know, uh, enabling progress is so critical as you think about the devices, the connectivity. Telcos play a huge role in there as well, uh, as well as the the business model that has been developed by you. I actually relate to some of the work that uh, we're doing in other markets like India as well, very similar micro SME market where we're enabling progress. Uh, But also that's leading to therefore innovation and new innovative business models like you spoke about. What effect are companies like Bukala Park having more broadly on, on the topic of innovation? I always say that we are one of those really cavalier people that goes into an uncharted territory almost every time, right? The key came across when we were able to test a 300 mom and pop kiosk in Indonesia to sell airplane ticket. An airplane ticket, arguably as domestic airplane ticket taken, but as a virtual product, it is probably as complex as it comes. And we were taken surprise that indeed, this mom and pop kiosk sold about $300,000 worth of airplane ticket in a month. And this is obviously before COVID. And that has sparked this understanding from us that in Indonesia, the mass market, the MSME, if you are rooting on the one aspect, which is help them to make more money, education can become secondary because they have that incentive to actually learn. And that spearhead this initiative from us that today we are targeting the full 64 million MSME of Indonesia. They contribute to 60% of the GDP. We are playing a vast role in helping the equality of the economic growth, um, essentially to help this vast layer of mass market and MSME to have the same opportunity in the same level playing field as the modern retailer, for example, right? So we do think that from that perspective, hopefully we play a vast part on not just addressing issue of poverty, but also uh, to help in regards of sustainability of economic growth. But more certainly, we have this vision that we are helping in reduction of inequality across the country. Uh, Terry, uh, it it strikes me the work that you're doing is both economic and societal progress and and really, really pleased to uh, be a deep partner of yours in the transformation journey. Now, let me perhaps shift to, uh, to Ray. I'm always amazed by the work that China has done uh, in the digital transformation landscape with, you know, mobile penetration, mobile payments, um, social commerce. You know, where in the world do we hear about social commerce, super apps? As you think about the dynamic nature of the China tech landscape, how will China export its innovation to the rest of the world? Yeah, thanks for asking this question. This is something that I work on a lot as part of my job. So one of the things I do is I have office hours with international entrepreneurs. You can come talk to me if you're inspired by Chinese companies and their business models. And what's happening is that I'm finding there are entrepreneurs all over the world who are looking at China tech much more closely these days than the U.S. And the common refrain I hear is that America is actually the exception 
the rest of the world looks much more like China, especially the developing countries. So when we're talking about Chinese innovations, tech innovations that are being exported right now, it is, as you correctly identified, primarily currently around mobile consumer internet, especially e-commerce, digital entertainment, such as live shopping, gaming, short video, etc. It's not just that non-Chinese entrepreneurs are working from Chinese ideas and being inspired by the Chinese business models, but also that more and more, especially this year, you're seeing massive growth in the number of Chinese entrepreneurs who are actually doing this themselves. They are taking Chinese business models and they are exporting it abroad. They're building global businesses from day one. So it's not the same as the Alibaba's and Tencent's of the world. Those companies started two decades ago and for a very long time. And even now, they're primarily working within the domestic market. But entrepreneurs more and more these days are building global businesses. And many of them are expanding outside of Chinese borders. Ray, thank you, actually, for those reflections. As uh, China and Chinese digital ecosystem is an inspiration and an aspiration for, uh, for many others in Asia. And in many ways, China is setting the scene for the rest of Asia to aspire to. Are other tech companies in Asia looking to China for inspiration? Yeah, so like I said, I think definitely many startup entrepreneurs are, but I do think it's important to differentiate even within Asia, right? It's such a big continent with so many people and you can kind of separate it into developed Asia versus developing Asia. And I think China is much more of a source of inspiration for developing countries. And that's partly because China itself is number one um, asset market, but not by any means homogenous. If I had to simplify, I typically say there's a sort of urban developed China and there's rural less developed China. And if you combine the 1 billion total mobile internet users across China, maybe 200, some say 400 million are in the urban areas, but at least 600 million are in the less developed areas. And that area is actually undergoing a lot of progress. And a lot of the same problems that you see in rural China in terms of infrastructure development, demographics, income levels, education levels, a lot of these factors, they look the same as developing Asia and they have a lot of the same challenges. So I actually wrote an op-ed earlier this year. I took a common refrain that's often said by VCs in China that the next China is China. What does that mean? That means all the growth we've seen in the past couple of decades in China actually came from the urban coastal areas and the rural area. And now it's really the rural area's time to shine. And this is why I think maybe 90% of the questions I'm getting in my office hours are about platforms like Pinduoduo, which is a social commerce discount retailer, and live shopping, which is the live streaming e-commerce that you see on platforms like Kuaishou and Douyin. These are all innovations that actually arose from the rural Chinese population. And, and I think because this regions where offline retail is kind of weak, brand recognition is low, people are new or to the internet, they have limited disposable income, but a lot of time. So a more gamified experience that gives them discount really appeals to them. There's also not a lot of offline entertainment options. All these factors have helped Chinese entrepreneurs create a shopping experience that is, I think, actually quite exportable to the rest of the world. Just 
Going back to Pinduoduo, for example, I just saw that a Brazilian clone of the company called Facily, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, just raised something like almost $400 million in the last year and is now worth $850 million, basically by copying the Pinduoduo playbook, but for Brazil. Coming up, we'll find out how young people are influencing tech in Asia and how Bacalapak made a difference during the pandemic. Ray, this is fascinating how you unpack China and uh, it's probably a great comparison for the rest of Asia. We have the urban and the not so urban and the rural uh, coexisting in Asia becomes a very eclectic aggregation of cultures, economies, and geographies. As you think about the evolution of other tech hotspots, you know, there's innovation happening. Unicorns are being built in India as they're being built in in Jakarta uh, or Singapore or, or Sydney for that matter. To what extent will China remain a tech driver as these markets start to produce their own innovation and, and unicorns or, or even decacorns for that matter? Oh, I definitely think there will just be more unicorns everywhere. I'm very much one of those techno-optimists. I think it's kind of a given that most companies will be tech-driven in the future and everything will be enabled by software or smart hardware. I think as the rest of Asia develops more, there are going to be many more mobile internet innovations that come out of other countries, not just China. Just like how the U.S. dominated the first stage of the internet for a long time, because, because, you know, most of the internet users were from the U.S., because most of the market and most of the talent and most of the capital was in the U.S. And now we're seeing Chinese innovations take front and center stage, but soon we'll see Indonesia, the rest of Southeast Asia, India being hotbeds for innovation, especially mobile internet. And I think what's happening in China right now, and you can see this very clearly, with the venture dollars deployed, is that more and more capital is going into non-mobile consumer internet sectors. So the peak for e-commerce investment actually was in 2014, 2015. Nowadays, it's much more about healthcare, advanced manufacturing, enterprise software, etc. So China itself is shifting in terms of the innovations that are coming out. And what I would say that what we see China is leading in today is probably not going to be what China leads in in a decade. A very interesting reflection, Ray, about you know how you see the future in diversification of industries and how tech will play a role in there. Diversification is really, or diversity for that matter, is really what Asia is all about. This region is so vibrant, right, from India where there's been a surge in unicorn activity this year to a tech boom in Australia. We saw the likes of Afterpay following Atlassian into a multi-billion dollar valuation club. Uh, One thing that I have noticed, though, is that no matter the industry, the vast majority of Asia's innovation and creativity is coming from the new generation. You know, the young uh, local creators, entrepreneurs, innovators who've really grown up in this omnipresent digital technology world. As a result, these digital natives are naturally more social, mobile, digital first. Maybe it's not surprising considering the level of internet and mobile penetration in this part of the world. 
So therefore, what does this younger generation really bring to tech? How are they doing things differently than the industry did 10 or 15 years ago? So I think more so for Indonesia, considering that it has a demographic dividend, right? So there's a vast amount of population that really grow up with tech. And, and I think one of the benefit of this generation that I've noticed is there's a group of people or vast amount of people who not only grew up with technology, they enjoy a much better education. A lot of them were educated overseas, come back, and most of these individuals, they are not afraid to fail, which was probably one of the key aspects, right? I think the older generation has hanging on more on security. The newer generation, they are vast among who, for example, one of our founders quit their job from BCG to set up this company, right? Um, to the dismay of his parents, obviously, at a time, but obviously ends up much better, right? But that also reflected even in the talent pool today, where if you looked at, for example, and I speak, I guess, just for our company, it's very rare, I guess, nowadays to find a company who dare to go out there and says, you know, we'll try out 10 things seven probably fail, right? But we need to make sure those three really make it. And to adopt this mentality of dare to fail fast, right? And therefore, you keep trying on a lot of uh, innovation. And this kind of behavior, this kind of mindset, I think has allowed for a lot of this more uh, innovative company to come up with innovations because you make room to try out a lot more things out there compared to the more stable, structured type of type of corporations. I absolutely agree with Teddy. I think, I mean, I'm an upper millennial, so I'm one of the oldest millennials. With regards to Asia, specifically China, I see that the biggest difference is that there's just much more entrepreneurship in China. That was really facilitated in part by the way from a top-down push by the government, making it socially acceptable and also economically feasible to go and do your own startup. But you really see that these days, young people are just having more and more side hustles all over the world, right? They're foregoing professional services. They're not choosing to work in large corporations. And more and more of them are doing their own startups. A lot of them are even doing their own angel investing. And because they're growing up in such a knowledge-rich environment, I think they have such low barriers to learning. The internet is native to them. And I think it's not just that they're fearless about adopting new technologies, as we see in this new Web3 decentralized finance wave, but that they just also learn so fast. They have just so much more knowledge. I'm so jealous of how much more knowledge they have than I did at their age. Ray and Teddy, I mean, I just feel so pumped listening to, to this because I'm hearing a very clear message, which is innovation and digital technology will help even skip a few sections of, you know, industries getting created. What we're really excited about is the fact that it's really the new generation that is pushing the boundaries of how commerce and businesses were established in the past. And as they were established in the past, this new future leaders, however, have a very different bar on many things. You know, whether it's about the environment that Teddy, you started talking about ESG, and we're seeing a lot of discussions on that, to the work that needs to be done around healthcare. Uh, and, and at the start of the podcast, we spoke about investment in healthcare and technology 
or it's about education. It's really about societal impact. And at Microsoft, our focus is on empowering people and organizations everywhere to achieve more. That really means we're working to improve societal inclusion and equitable growth. Through our own programs and with our partners, we're supporting better access to education, finance and healthcare, and more upskilling opportunities for those who want to advance their careers. This is particularly crucial given the demand for tech-enabled roles across the industry. So in the past year alone, we've upskilled 6 million people in Asia with tech skills to become a part of the digital economy. We're also partnering with more organizations to help them to innovate. We want to help bridge the data divide so that AI and data innovation is both safer and easier. I believe organizations like Microsoft have a role and a responsibility to help drive both societal and economic progress. So I'm interested to discuss this approach across tech companies, and I hope that they will drive progress in their markets, especially as the region recovers from the pandemic. Our view, uh, Teddy and Ray, is that shareholder accretion and shareholder value is now one of the priorities, the bigger priorities that we as organizations really are chasing are about creating progress that is more inclusive. So what role will this new model of tech businesses play in reshaping the countries that are a part of this region and the economies of it? How can they help to unlock opportunities and create a more inclusive economy to address some of the challenges that this region faces? Uh, Let me start with Ray. Sure, I think that's an especially relevant question to ask this year, especially for China, because we've seen that the government has really come in pretty hard on tech companies. So yes, I would say that in China, there's a lot of regulatory pressure, first and foremost, to push for more equal development within the country. So the national priority has now become one of common prosperity, which doesn't mean, by the way, that everyone needs to have the same outcome. That's important to note, but it does mean that the development needs to be more evenly distributed. And because tech companies are driving so much development and so much economic progress and really remaking society so quickly, then the onus is put on the tech companies, especially the large consumer internet platforms, to make sure that everything they do is not exacerbating inequality. It's not making things worse for the underprivileged or under-resourced. And actually, I would say that sentiment is not just in China. Maybe it's most formally being enacted in China, but it's really a worldwide movement. It's not just about shareholder interests anymore. Companies are being called upon very explicitly to work for all stakeholders involved. Employees, other community members, customers, suppliers, everyone they touch, right? And I personally think that this is a good thing, even though it is really hard to balance everyone's interests. But overall, I think it's great that we're having these conversations and not just overly focused on shareholders. Again, in China, there is a top-down push, but I also talk to many entrepreneurs who really are concerned about this personally. They're thinking about what to do when it comes to ESG, how to 
enact more corporate social responsibility. They're contemplating not just about profits, but what are they contributing to society? What is their legacy? And I'm personally cautiously optimistic about these efforts. I think that not everyone's going to get them on the first try. Uh, not the companies, not the regulators, not the public, but at least there's some discussion and there's action and there's some impetus, you know, towards trying to understand the consequences of these really disruptive technologies like AI recommendation algorithms. Everyone is trying to be more socially responsible. And I think it's just a good thing. Yeah, um, I, I'm actually quite pleased, Ahmed, that you mentioned about the training and education. We do actually have that program in Indonesia with Microsoft Indonesia, where we are uh, rolling out training to help a lot of these mom and pop kiosks to, to use technology, right? So really, really grateful with that partnership also with Microsoft. And I think, you know, Andrea, you're perfectly spot on when you say that not everybody will get it right the first time. When a lot of people look at Bukalapak and Mitra Bukalapak, which is our mom and pop kiosk segment, and looked at how this is now growing at triple digit, helping a lot of this MSME to increase their revenue by 3x. But a lot of people also didn't realize that this is probably the third or the fourth iteration of the business model, right? And the first few was had a lot of problem and we had to go back and fix and get things better, hopefully now. Um, I think for us, we are somewhat blessed because we have come across a business structure that essentially it is a business structure, but it does have a vast amount of contribution to the social aspect. Wherein, for example, in, in throughout the period of the pandemic, initially we were quite concerned because we were connected to millions and millions of the mom and pop store and pandemic was a big issue in our head in March 2020. But it was quite exciting to see that because of the pandemic, a lot of the population do not want to travel too far. So they ended up engaging to their neighborhood community store, this mom and pop store. And that visit after visit, they're starting to realize that, hey, this mom and pop store where previously were only a place for me to buy my snacks and FMCG goods, apparently now are able to service me on a lot of my daily needs from basic top-up phone credits, bill payment, credit card bill payment, tax payment, right? And what we have seen is even that behavior has become a lot more sticky. So this has helped, I guess, um, well, pandemic is definitely not a good thing, but it has benefited some of this mom and pop store to re-engage a lot of their community and customer, right? And I think, you know, touching on this very similar point, and I'm, I don't know uh, if this applicable elsewhere, but I do hope so. Maybe because of how fragmented a lot of the aspect of Indonesia, we find, at least from our side also, is that a lot of the newer business model in technology that comes out are quite different compared to the previous mindset. You know, the previous kind of technology flow has been more on disruption domination almost. But what we find a lot of the um, companies that come up today and including a lot of our initiative, we don't actually seek to disrupt for the sake of disrupting. These companies are more collaborative, right? Collaborating even 
not just across technology company, but bridging between or marrying between the online platform as well as the existing conventional offline business, connecting to banks, connecting to logistic companies, connecting to multi-finance companies, connecting to FMCG distributor, and come up with solution on how to empower their business better. And, and I think that notion is really exciting for me. And, and I'm really excited to see that you know, there are this path of generation that thinking a lot more on collaboration rather than pure disruption. You, both of you make just fantastic points about the potential for the future. And what really struck me is that companies are really more focused now on a very purpose-led mission where it's really about collaborative progress. It's about moving together But it's also about the responsibilities that we have as corporations. And I think that really stands out uh, from this discussion as well. I've just been fascinated by what I heard today. And I just learned tremendously from this discussion. It was really insightful. And I'm walking out of this energized and optimistic equally that we will do much better for the world. As an Oxford economist, Colin Myers, who's written a wonderful book called Prosperity, would say, that we have to do good to do well. And therefore, economic and societal progress just have to walk hand in hand. So in the past two years, you know, what it has taught us is that change is the only constant. And the same applies to the technological landscape as well. Technology is changing practically every aspect of our life. It can and will disrupt and improve industries and societies and affect the ways we live, work, engage, and connect. There is an imperative to use technologies responsibly and ethically, but I strongly believe that whatever challenges lie ahead, technology, when applied well, will provide the right solutions. At Microsoft, as we said earlier, we partner with organizations of all sizes and ambitions to empower them to do more. Our success is tied to theirs. And it's also tied to the long-term success of Asia. After hearing so many examples from our guests today, I'm extremely hopeful about the direction we're headed. It's hard not to be optimistic hearing about businesses like Bukala Park. Once again, I'd like to thank our guest, Teddy Otomo of Bukala Park and tech commentator Ray Ma for taking the time out for our conversation. I can't wait to hear more about what you're both up to in the near future. As we close, I wanted to say goodbye, stay well, and take care. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by EI Studios, the custom division of Economist Impact.